I wanted to make a quick note on some of the themes that will be discussed in this episode. Homebase and our partners share a mission that's about service, hope, and healing. But at the same time, you'll hear reflections on loss, mental illness, suicide, and stigma. And if you or your loved one is experiencing any emotional, mental health struggles, you're not alone. Please contact Homebase, 617-724-5202, or through our website, homebase.org. It gives me hope that in, in our culture and our country, maybe we will take mental health more seriously. And maybe we will take soldiers' mental health far more serious. I won't say I'm 100%, but learning that I'm not a fraud was one of the larger takeaways. You know, so many people I know died or injured, and I'm standing here, similar experiences, but I have no physical wounds. So that's where my kind of fraud uh, self-thought came from. And my mindset wasn't correct. Like it's, it's not a fraudulent thing for me or to feel like I'm a fraud because I don't have any physical wounds that you can see. Hey everybody, welcome back to Homebase Nation. This is Ron Hirschberg, your host. And a few weeks ago on Veterans Day, we released a short message where we shared with all of you what it was like to be at the 2021 Salute to Freedom Gala at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum. Being there was such a huge honor just to be around so many people who have served this country and those who supported them. Veterans out there, if, you know, need, if, you know, deserve peace. They deserve uh, uh, happiness. They don't have to live like this. And, and help is available. And so I think that, if anything, I was just focused on, like, being up there on stage is just a representation of people that are making a choice to get help. And that's what's important. That's what's key. That's what's critical. So we wanted to find a space on our show to share those voices and stories of veterans and their families and revisit that night to hear from and share a bit more about the honorees, how the event came to be, and the collective mission that we have at home base partnering with incredible teams at the Intrepid and the Fisher House Foundation. So if you listened to our show before, you know that it's about serving those who served. And this is something we take a lot of pride in around home base. The gala was a time to honor those who really walked that walk. To get a deeper understanding about the evolution of the Salute to Freedom Gala, we talked with president of the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum, Susan Marinoff-Zausner. It was uh, originally scheduled for May of 2020, as, um, as you heard it probably in my opening remarks. So as we emerge from this pandemic, this gala is a major, major milestone. Uh, You know, Ken Fisher, our co-chairman, had a vision of bringing Prince Harry, uh, at the time Prince Harry, um, of the royal, uh, into the event as an honoree. Uh, But Prince Harry had accepted to come to be not honored, but instead to honor others. 2019. I took the idea to him of honoring him and his efforts at this very gala, to which he humbly declined. It was then decided instead to recognize the men and women managing the stressors of combat and award their bravery, and that by doing so, together, we could generate more understanding around these critical issues. And to that, he agreed 
and we are very grateful. So that was just so completely in line with um, our mission and our belief. And then knowing that they had just collaborated uh, that he had just collaborated with John Bon Jovi on that song Unbroken. We thought, what an amazing opportunity to bring them together. Uh, here's John Bon Jovi, who has his own, you know, following in his own worldwide platform. And if these two individuals can showcase how they're giving to others, you know, what's a better story than that? And so the two of them together um, and with the Intrepid and Ken, um, there was a decision made that this would highlight um, what the impact is of the invisible wounds of war and the fact that the general public really doesn't know what that means and what that's about and the, the depths of the impact that that can have not only in the individual, but of the family, on the family. And so we knew we had our platform, we knew we had an anchor from which to um, begin developing the gala. But we also always have a corporate honoree. And Bob Pittman when we were doing our research and we were talking to our trustees, if you actually look at what um, iHeartMedia does on a corporate level, I, I actually said this to Bob at the event, the list of who they give back to and, and the community effort that their employees take on and the fact that um, it is so deep and what he has is his own veterans program through iHeartMedia. I mean, it was just this trifecta that we thought was um, clearly a home run. And so we were able to bring these incredible individuals together, um, two who were honored. And as you know, the Duke of Sussex, Prince Harry, wanted to honor uh, those who had returned with the invisible wounds of war. And so uh, again, Ken um, and his incredible relationships reached out to uh, General Hammond, Jack Hammond, and, um, and he was able to really think about who would be individuals that um, could, could represent um, not only the different services, but represent the challenge that has, the challenge that they've gone through, the challenge that their family has gone through. And this, this became, um, it was a coming out, it's a coming out moment of exposing their pain, but for the good of having people understand, people in that room and the greater public understand um, the pain that they have been going through, the pain it causes families, and ultimately to um, the frequency of suicide amongst those who have been traumatized by um, PTS, by you know, whether it's caused by um, whatever it might be, IED explosions, TBI, that results, all of these different facets that come together, um, that is this invisible struggle. What a group of military families, veterans, active duty service members, and civilians, all on the intrepid aircraft carrier, coming together for one purpose and one mission. Scanning the room left and right, looking at the stage and hearing the sounds of service members marching and hearing the national anthems of the U.S. and Britain. There's a true theme of service here and sacrifice that was palpable, but loss 
and grief and stress were certainly part of this. And the honorees shared that surreal feeling of being on stage, receiving this award from Prince Harry, and at the same time that it was a way to honor all of their brothers and sisters and family members who served and continue to serve. Chief Warrant Officer Stephen Rudinsky, U.S. Marine Corps, New York. And of course, Chief Petty Officer Wayne Ty Donovan, U.S. Navy, who couldn't make it tonight because he's currently on assignment. Ladies and gentlemen, your winners. What was so powerful was the fact that the honorees of the Intrepid Valor Awards all shared this connection, that when they fell down and needed help, they sought help. And they were here to shout out that it's not only common to need help, It's noble to go to the next step and get it so that they can move on with their lives and continue to thrive amongst their family and friends. They all share this surreal feeling, too, of being on that stage receiving an award from Prince Harry, and at the same time, it was a way to honor all of their brothers and sisters and family members who've served along with them and continue to serve. So we were able to connect with three of the honorees of the Intrepid Valor Award at and after the gala, Barbara Block, Julian Kitching, and Stephen Rudinsky, who graduated from our intensive clinical programs at home base. Barbara had been married to Lieutenant Colonel Matt Block for 28 years, and Matt died by suicide on April 23, 2019. Barbara connected with Tragedy Assistant Program for Survivors, or TAPS, and sought treatment at home base as part of our intensive clinical program for the Families of the Fallen in May 2021. Barbara owns her own catering business, is passionate about theater and music. She talks fondly about that with us, about her and her husband singing and listening to music. As she continues to heal from her loss, she hopes to advocate for mental health awareness and treatment for all veterans and military families. Yeah, you're you're looking at this. this. I mean, I want it because of the on, but trust me, I would throw this in the river in a heartbeat if I could go home and sing with Matt. Think of a ball of yarn that two cats just got into. That's what grief looks like. It's not linear. It's not straight lines. It's not up and down. It's all over the place. One night, listening to the radio, and (laughs) he really liked Rush. One of his claims to fame is his high school band and Brown County, Wisconsin, which is outside of Green Bay, they opened for Rush when he was in high school. Big, you know, county fair, okay? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. State fair, whatever. But anyway, I heard a song, and I thought it was Rush, but it turns out it was ACDC. But the opening, the openings are the same. Spirit Radio and, um, um, I can't think of the name now. But, and I thought, oh, okay. But I knew with Matt, I could talk about it. He and I would sit there and talk about it. We could talk about the, the note patterns and we could talk about this. And I thought, who else on this planet am I ever going to have a conversation about the beginning of a song at the same level? Mm. 
And that, and that was one of those other days it struck home. It's like, well, no one. And this is part of my new life now. It was one more, and, and they strike you all the time, the finality of the situation. I've never thought he was coming back home. I know some people feel, oh, you know, this. I've never had that magical thinking. But sometimes it just hits you in the gut. You're like, oh, yeah, he's gone again. Mm. And we were married 28 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so we knew each other 30 plus years. Yeah, there's those little jokes, those little inside things that, you know, maybe it's a movie line. Maybe it's this, that, or the other. That are only make sense to you and that person. Mm. And when they're gone, they're gone. I could see the same movie with someone else, but that wouldn't. we might not hit on the same thing. And I think when you have a loss, well, I know when you have a loss, but you lose, you lose those little tiny things. And our home base intensive clinical program director, Laura Harward, took it all in and reflected. It is so inspiring to see how far she's come from just a few months ago. In particular, she's someone who always talks about not just wanting to better herself, but she's always talked about wanting to continue her husband Matt's role as a teacher and be able to help and inspire others as well. So to see her, most importantly, get the recognition for her representation of this community is just such a reminder of why we do this program. Well, in the totality, it's fantastic. Prince Harry opened up his psyche, his head, and his struggles to the whole world. And I got to share some of mine with this group here. It gives me hope that in in our culture and our country, maybe we will take mental health more seriously. And maybe we will take soldiers' mental health far more serious. And to extrapolate it even further and gets a wee bit political, maybe politicians will think before they send people into battle. Sometimes it's necessary, but let's look at the totality and the end game, not just let's go in there and do this, but what happens when people come home. Suicide is still taboo. People still don't want to talk about it. I'm willing to talk about it. It happens. You know, all levels of society, all lines, all races, it happens, and we need to talk about it. But what you're doing is you're indirectly or directly um, saving others. I do hope so. I do hope so, because that's that's why I'm here now. That's why I'm here. I mean, not just here. It's, I think that's why I'm on the planet. She needs to make sure that she takes care of herself and heals herself in order to be able to continue to help others, which I know is one of her life goals. I'm here now, and that's, that's huge. The fact that I realized that I'm here now, not there. Julian joined the Army in 2002. He served in four combat deployments, including one to Iraq and three to Afghanistan. He began his career in communications before transitioning to intelligence. He currently lives in Maryland with his wife, Kala, and their six children, ages 7 through 22. Julian endured multiple losses of close friends and mentors during his deployments, 
and sought treatment at the intensive clinical program. Yeah, no, that, that's great. So, um, hi everyone, I'm Julian Kitching, and um, you know, I was uh, you know kind of working in a series of this is after I've left college, I've kind of started a small family with my wife. We're living in the Richmond, Virginia area, and uh, my younger brother had joined the army. Uh, I think it was sometime. I think it was 2000, he had joined the army. And in 2000, so later that year, I had seen him graduate from basic training and I had been running and trying to lose a little bit of weight. I was kind of a bigger guy at that point. And I said, you know, this army thing makes a lot of sense to me. I don't know how I'll get there because I'm kind of, you know, too heavy to get there. And I started running and just kept doing, kept doing. And I started losing a lot of weight. And then September of 2001 happens. And of course, it's the attacks of September 11th. And I immediately knew that I was going to meet my goal. I just was like, hey, I know I'm going to get this done. And in February of 2002, I joined Left for Basic Training. And very shortly after that, ended up in Iraq, um, serving with a special operations unit uh, as a communications person. As soon as I got back, this is, you know, uh, you know 2003, I get back and I immediately volunteer for a special forces uh, assessment and selection as soon as I can. I go in, uh, I'm selected to be a communication sergeant, and that's two years of training right there. And then I spent the next several years uh, deploying with the third Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg um, in support of Operation Enduring Freedom, mainly. And, and man, the training does such a good job of getting you in. Um, not, it's not a mindset, because I think that that connotes uh, images of kind of a temporary outlook on things. It's ingrained into everything that they teach you. Um, working with and through indigenous forces or surrogate forces to accomplish, you know, huge strategic foreign policy outcomes. Hello, my name is uh, Stephen Rudinsky. I'm a Chief Officer 5 in the United States Marine Corps. Stephen has been serving in the Marine Corps since 1994 and is currently ranked as a Chief Warrant Officer. He served four deployments total, two to Iraq and two to Afghanistan, and he's worked in emergency services and firefighting, He's overseen training for air-based ground defense and damage assessment teams. Stephen has proudly raised two children, now 21 and 23 years old. He suffered tremendous loss in both his military career and his personal life, and Stephen sought out care in the intensive clinical program as well. Uh, so uh, I came in in 94 and uh, was originally infantry, and then I did a year in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, so 94 to 95, when the second, you know, post-80s, you know, Haitian and Cuban uh, migration to the state. So I was down there when all that stuff was going on and then uh, went from that to embassy duty. So I worked in Kathmandu, Nepal, Ottawa, Canada were the two main ones, spent some time in uh, Spain and Thailand for support, and then went directly from embassy duty overseas to Japan for four years, came back to the States, did a little bit of a uh, Instructing at the schoolhouse was selected to go to the dark side, so a warrant officer. Uh, and then after after that, uh, everything kind of it's been pretty busy since two thousand three. Yeah, it was it was deeply meaningful, and I think it it uh, it's the kind of work that that really uh, hits on all cylinders. At least it did for me. You're completely engaged, you know, emotionally, physically, mentally, um, and you're and you're you're just completely immersed in these problem sets that you, that you are uh, assigned. But, but I think each time a, you know, a service member returns home, you're getting a little bit different person because of the, the levels of stress and the things that you've seen are just so 
different than a kind of normal United States of America life, you're coming back and that those, that those stressful events and things have kind of in some ways fundamentally changed who you are. And so there's a learning process, like a, like they call it reintegration, like I said, but it's, it's more than that. It's like a, Hey, how are you? Are you good at, at very fundamental and basic levels? And then from there, you kind of grow back like, okay, I'm fine. You know, it's me, it's Julian and, and, and kind of going from there. I was thinking about when we, when we service members, uh, which is very common, if we tell something that was of a stressful environment to someone else in the service, I never find myself getting any type of emotion because you, you know what to say, how to say it. And nine times out of 10, they understand what you're saying. So being deployed and all those things I experienced, I did just kind of had those in a basket. It was later when started noticing the personal self-destructive measures I was taking and somebody on the outside would ask a question. It was like a, a sadness, a fear, an embarrassment, like all this stuff pulling up. And my only outlet is I would just get emotional. Like just now trying to tell you that it's, it's this weird thing where admitting to it is fine but you still like this little thing in the back, like, ah, I could potentially be judged for this. Like someone's going to look and they're going to think something where it doesn't matter what anybody thinks. And that's all I want anyone else who's holding on just to let go of that. So there are these moments or events that so many service members experience that make it pretty clear that something's just different, whether during or post deployment. And it's also clear that family bonds may not always break, but definitely can bend just enough to realize it's time to get help. Yeah, I think I think it was really um, during my my last deployment with Third Special Forces Group. So I came back in late late 2011, and I think we had just kind of had our operating procedures. So I mean, there, there were some really traumatic events during that um, deployment, and I think that that reinforced for me a need to be very intentional about that process. Um, I think the first two deployments with Third Special Forces Group were um, were kind of like happy-go-lucky, like yeah, we did it, yeah, we got, we're back, ha! and that that was one mentality. But I don't think it served us very well. And that last one, after losing you know a close friend, after being you know just one of the most difficult and stressful several months after that loss, really just drove home for me like, hey, I need to take things slow. You know, after that deployment, things deteriorated rapidly. I began relying on alcohol and and uh, other substances, and and as a way to detach and not think about the things that happened. And and so for me, you know, like, you know, my my family is like the most important group of people to me. Their approval, uh, their their health, their well being. Uh, like I think, like most people, their families are what what's most critical. And I and I and I definitely did need to get the help that I needed to preserve that. And I, and I realized that um, by not getting help, I was making a conscious decision to push my children away. Um, you know, I, I remember distinctly, I actually overheard a conversation with uh, my wife and our 16-year-old daughter. And she was just despondent and saying, you know, she wanted back her father, the one that was before Afghanistan. And, and hearing her say that was the most like heartbreaking 
thing. This is a dad. You you know, you think you're sublime. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not drinking that much. I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm still a good dad. I'm still this. I'm still that. And it was then, for whatever reason, that I was able to say, look, I, I see it now. I know that I need to get help. I know that I uh, need to seek out treatment for this, all these issues. And I'm so glad that I did um, because she's going to get back her dad. And, and I might not be like the same exact person, but, um, you know, at least, you know, I'm a person that has consciously sought out this treatment and I'm getting better, you know? No. And that's the kind of looking back at it now. And when I was up at home base, I think it's the hardest thing to grab a hold of because some people associate with trauma or events that happened when they were younger and then coming into the Marine Corps. And I feel like I've got an actual clean line between coming in, like everything I, I knew for the most part resolved before I came in the Marine Corps. And even during the years of deployment, it, it didn't hit until after. So you, I did my deployments and then probably 2013, 2014. So the sleep issues started pretty much from when uh, my original deployment, kind of being anxious at night, waking up a bunch of times. But the personal relationships fracturing started after 2012, uh, end of 2012, after my last deployment to where just kind of internalizing everything. I, I don't, nope, I can handle this. It's not impacting my work. I'm just going to press forward. So not sharing uh, really anything with anybody, family, friends, it, it really didn't matter. Uh, and that just compounded uh, over time to where I just had to do a, you know, take a training time out, like something's going to give. So it started in uh, 2019. Uh, I noticed that the drinking, I was consciously, subconsciously trying to drink myself into a grave. Uh, and there was one week, uh, I'd say first half, yeah, first half of last year, or so it was 2020, I'm sorry, not 19, where within an, a week's period, so seven calendar days, I went through four handles of vodka, which, which you understand, it's not the 750 milliliter bottle, it's that big gallon looking thing. Yeah. And I was like, noticed like my hand would be shaking in the morning. I was like, I know what this is. I don't, I don't have a, some type of disorder. I'm literally drinking myself into a grave. Uh, my sister is a really good registered nurse. I called her. I told her what I was planning to do after she yelled at me for not admitting myself. I had to text her numerous times through the day. So once I got through that four day, three day, kind of, I, I don't feel good. Uh, withdrawal from alcohol. I then didn't know how to deal with conversations because before I could just get away from people, drink a little bit, go to sleep, wake up the next morning, do my job and avoid everything. Without that crutch, I then started noticing I was arguing more with people, be it at work or in personal relationships. And that went on for, you know, six to seven months, maybe six months. And then uh, through Kim, my, my significant other, uh, she recommended uh, Wounded Warrior Project and then Wounded Warrior Project reached out and set up everything for home base. And uh, yeah, that's, that's where the goodness started, yeah. There's this common disconnect, stigma and mental illness. We hear about it all the time. In theory, it makes a lot of sense. 
But in real life, there can be this missing stamp of approval or acknowledgement that it's not a weakness and that so many go through the same struggles. I think what I'll, what I'll say is this, um, and I shared this with, with Prince Harry while we kind of were talking with him alone as, or as a small group. And I said, like, you know, so I think soldiers who are service members in general, um, they, they want to know a, a few things. And I think that the top line item that somebody wants to know coming out of like a really stressful combat experience is that, that they did a good job. And combat leaders are there to reinforce that, you know, hey, this happened. You, you did a good job. You did what you were trying to do. And that is the most gratifying feeling, I think, for, uh, for service members coming out of those experiences. But what, what happens a lot of times is things don't go according to plan. And people leave those experiences thinking that they didn't do a good job, particularly when they don't feel good about what happened. You lost somebody. You were hurt. That's not what's supposed to happen. We're, we're soldiers. We were trained to win. And this time it didn't feel like we won. And so what, I think there's a couple of things as leaders in, in the military, leaders need to be able to tell soldiers that everything's not always going to go according to plan and that that's okay and that you still did a good job. And if, you, and if you're feeling um, uh, like it didn't go well and that's hurting you and you're dreaming about it or you're having uh, issues or, or concerns about that, that that's okay too. But I think what happens a lot of times is, is we, we make up stories about what war is like. And, you know, we don't tell people about what that first combat engagement is going to be like. We don't tell people about how their vision is going to be, you know, down to a tunnel or that they're not going to be able to hear things because they're so, their adrenaline levels are so high and a host of other things. We lie to them and tell them it's going to feel great. And so I think we just need to be very truthful with, with service members about what happens afterwards and say, look, you still did a great job. Seeking help is not weakness. Um, you know, and, and if you do need help, you should be free to get it. And we should be removing all obstacles and barriers to getting that help. And so when I think about how I supported myself, I don't know that I did a great job when I was on active duty. I think I promoted the work that I did to a level that was probably unhealthy, where it had consumed a large part of my identity. And it wasn't until after I left active duty that I decided to prioritize self-care and family care. And so my my recommendation to people is that if you need help, get it as soon as you can. And, and I know that that might present some tough choices for the work that you do. For me, you know, I had a top secret clearance. I was involved in some special activities and uh, it was hard for me to make a case to break away because I felt like the work that I was doing was impactful, but it, but nothing is more impactful than taking care of your kids and your family or yourself. So you should do that. The one thing I was very hesitant prior to going to home base was the group setting uh, of it uh, to where I didn't want to be around uh, anyone because I have like the, no, it's, it's my, my things. I'll, I'll share it with someone. I just don't want to share with a group. And the way that the group setting is handled there is in a way that is, it's off-putting when you expect something to be negative. Again, my own anticipation, but yeah, it was like, completely welcoming where if you wanted to answer a question or share, you could, if not, don't, but they always kept it going on track and didn't allow anything to, to 
go off the rails, uh, as it were. So that was real positive knowing like, okay, if I'm around other Marines or service members and they've got questions, I now know how I can approach things just by a way of maybe questioning that I was very comfortable with. And also just kind of reassurances. I won't say I'm a hundred percent, but learning that I'm not a fraud was one of the larger takeaways to where like, I've got my arms, I've got my legs, uh, I don't have holes in me. How is it, you know, so many people I know died or injured and I'm standing here, similar experiences, but I have no physical wounds. So that's where my kind of fraud uh, self-thought came from. And then talking to people, not necessarily at home base, but uh, just other service members who were injured and my mindset wasn't correct. Like it's, it's not a fraudulent thing for me or to feel like I'm a fraud because I don't have any physical wounds that you can see. And it's just, it was interesting, the mindset, because I didn't have anything, I constantly would put it down like, Oh, I'm undeserving of this. I don't need this. Someone else is more deserving. Um, So Home base definitely helped with that. It is a, a weight that that lifts, and it just goes to the fact of, you know, me and anyone else out there who you, you keep stuff in and you think it's you know, it can be hidden or you don't have to deal with it or no one else knows. Well, wrong on all three fronts there. And even if you don't get all the best responses from people you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to hide why you're getting angry or why you don't want to talk about something or that if remembering something and it makes you emotional, be it anger or sad, it's okay. Yeah, man. I I think each time you, you, you like make those good decisions to, to engage with, um, with self-care, with resilience. um, I think that, that you, you're, participating in that reverse transformation, right? You you know, th- those stressful events, those combat experiences might have changed you in one way. And now you're working to kind of not, not I don't think forget, I think that's, that's maybe the wrong goal, but to process, to unpack, to place in proper perspective your service and the things that, that you did, um, whatever those things were. Um, and, and as I said before, I think there are people who are coming away from those experiences, not feeling great about what happened. And so this is a, this is a conscious decision to push back against that and to seek and to, and to change oneself for the better. And so I think it's, it's meaningful and impactful in that way. I think everyone in the room on the Intrepid was wondering what it must've been like for our honorees to be there and have this experience along with other families and supporters, not only in the moment, but what would follow after the event and what this meant for healing the invisible wounds as a whole community. Since uh, the event, I've had peers and junior Marines, to include senior Marines, uh, ask me specific stuff about the event, uh, specific stuff about home base and other programs. And people who I would have never thought would have asked. Like, just like me, they, they put up that little... Yeah, the, the front while they're at work or they're around family and friends. Uh, so for them to feel comfortable enough because 
of <laughs> the harassment I'm getting for being at the event uh, to then go off on the side. Those conversations have been very surprising to me, but uh, I'm very happy. So I can agree with you now that before I would have dismissed it, but now it's, it's a very real thing. There's a number of people that have reached out. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. I, you know, I've never experienced anything like that. That was really such a, just the way they put everything together was just, was just amazing. I think, I think it was seeing, um, seeing my wife sitting with Megan <laughs> Markle. So, so we, the, the, here's what happened. We walk up to this table and I didn't, you know, realize that they weren't going to seat us together. My wife was freaked out. She was like, oh, where's my name? So she's running back and forth between tables and she never went around our table and saw that she was uh, seated next to Megan. And then she lights up and she said, oh, I'm good, honey. You know, I'm like, oh, so now she doesn't want to sit next to me anymore. She was so happy. Uh, and they just talked like old friends the whole night. So it was so cool for her to be able to have that experience. I think it was really good. And it was great for me to just watch her. She was just glowing all night long. It was surreal, but, but also uh, like a deep sense of gratitude and also um, a sense that, that the journey that I was on was, was necessary, you know, and, and, we, and that the healing that, that, that I attained, that I, that, that I was able to get at home base was something that, um, that I almost owed to my family. I was very thankful to see, you know, people in all these different spaces and places elevating this issue of people needing to get the help, getting the help that they needed. And I think for me, there was this sense at some point, and I can't remember when it popped in my head, but that I was going to get healed or die trying. Uh, and I wanted people to, uh, you know, I think in that moment on the Intrepid, I think I was just like, you know, people need to get the help. And the P and, and I think what I said was that, um, Veterans out there, if you know, need if, you know, deserve peace. They deserve uh, uh, happiness. They don't have to live like this, and and help is available. And so, I think that if anything, I was just focused on like being up there on stage is just a representation of people that are making a choice to get help, and that's what's important. That's what's key. That's what's critical. It's not about Julian Kitchen getting an award. It's about the broader community getting the help that they deserve and that they need and that we as a country and civic society owe them. Yeah, there, there was a little bit of fear in that as well. And I, I didn't say it at the moment. I was very proud to be there, um, very humbled to be you know, chosen to represent the Marine Corps uh, for that evening. Uh, but the fear meaning well, everything that I've done, even – I tried to do on a personal level. Like I took leave when I came uh, to home base. I took leave for the, the gala. My command knew nothing about it. And it was that fear, internal fear, which was, was based on zero facts. But we, you make them up in your head what you think the reality is going to be. So it was a relief that I finally kind of admit I was representing at that evening. But then a fear of like, I've got to have conversations that I have very clearly avoided for a number of years and avoided them very well. And that also included conversations with family and more importantly, my kids. My son has always had a sense like he knew what was going on, but never, never openly judged or did anything where I knew my daughter's frustrations over the years. 
And it was like, how, you know, trying to repair from that. That was one of the things going to home base is, you know, career is a career. I could get out of the Marine Corps. They'll forget about me, but I, I need to make changes to ensure that the people I care about uh, know that I care about them and, you know, are taken care of. So that was one of the, the best takeaways from that evening is um, talking with my daughter. You think you can get something by children or family. And it never does. You convince yourself and nobody knows what's going on inside. And my daughter's like, yeah, pops, we knew like you were always on edge. Um, and she gave a couple examples and she goes, and you've just been much better. And it was just that last part. And she didn't know anything of it, but she, she had recognized a change this year. So that was, um, uh, that was the biggest reward of what that night allowed me to receive. The specific goal of this particular gala is being able to utilize the stories um, very specifically of the honorees who allowed us to do so to show that, um, that there is an issue and that speaking about it and that um, educating the public about it can only begin to develop other support programs. I mean, home base is spectacular, right, in what you do. And, and then the Invictus Games for those who, you know, utilizing sport in their power and their equalizer and, and bringing, back, uh, bringing back their self-esteem and their strength, um, the stories that we heard through, through these honorees um, was just incredible. It was their first stop on the healing tour, right? And the first stop is the most important. And I know for sure we're going to keep having galas like this to be able to tell stories and, um, and expose um, issues that are hard to talk about, perhaps um, unknown to many, and, and utilize us as a platform for good, for that communication so that other programs can be developed continuously to support those who have returned home. When Prince Harry presented the awards to the honorees, he said many great things, and one thing stood out to us that we'll never forget. He said, service isn't loud. Service is what happens in the quiet and when people aren't looking. It's about how we take care of each other every single day. It's about the camaraderie we share, the laughs, the comfort, the pain, the challenge, and yes, the banter. Throughout my time in the military and after, I recognized and understood that for many who have served or are still serving, it might not feel right to stand out amongst the team and be recognized, but you deserve to be recognized. Do we have anything that comes to mind? Jesus loving of my soul. Let me to thy bosom fly. We want to thank the service members and survivors who joined us for this episode and for all you have done to highlight the needs for our veterans and military families. Julian Kitching, Stephen Rudinsky, and Barbara Block. And when the need while the tempest still but there were more than 80 veterans, active duty service members, and families present that night. And we know that everyone in that room, and people like them all around the world, have their own struggles and their own stories to tell. 
So it's our hope that these stories don't remain fully stored inside and that for anyone needing help or seeing loved ones in need of help, we'll seek it. Thank you to all who serve and your families who have served by your side. When the storms of life are past, safe and true the Special thanks to Susan Marinoff-Zausner, Alexis Marion, and the whole team at the Intrepid Sea, Air, and Space Museum. And thanks to Ken Fisher and the Fisher House Foundation for all of your collaboration and support over the years. This month is December 2021, and we'll be ending our third season of Homebase Nation after about two years. We are so grateful for you listening and for your support. If you haven't already, please subscribe to us on all the major platforms for podcasts. This episode was edited and produced by Lucy Little. This is Ron Hirschberg. Thanks so much for listening.